0: I am, I am really honored to be able to, to, uh, to preach God's word today, uh, to stand in for Pastor Dan as he's on vacation uh, right now with his family. Uh, we're going to be in John 16. Uh, so kind of to give us some bearings just before we enter into this, uh, we're, we're basically coming up to the end of this time in the upper room. Uh, we've been camped out here for a while, basically since we started back in, in the Gospel of John. We've been in the upper room. And, and in the coming weeks, We'll get through John 17, which is this great prayer, but then it's going to start to really move. A lot of stuff's going to start to happen. And so uh, we're finishing up what's traditionally called the upper room discourse, uh, John uh, uh, 13 through 16, and then with the high priestly prayer. There. So just to keep in mind, they're in this upper room. They're in Jerusalem. It's, it's the evening of the first day of Passover. It's the night before Jesus is betrayed. Uh, Judas Iscariot has, has already left to go out and, and basically gather uh, the, the soldiers and chief priests. Uh, Jesus has already washed the disciples' feet. They've already had the Lord's Supper together. Uh, with the Passover meal, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. And so now he's wrapping up everything he's been saying. That's what he's about to do here. He's gonna, it, this is sort of like the capstone on everything I've been saying for three chapters. Four chapters. And so, here we go. John 16, verses 25 to 33. This is God's word. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have given us your word to reveal, to reveal who you are in holiness and justice and goodness, to reveal to us our need for you and to show us the way. Indeed, these are the words of eternal life, and we pray by your Spirit, would you help us today? Help me that I might declare your truth, and help us that we might receive it as from you. Be praised in this time, God. Convict us where we need it. Comfort us where we need it. Encourage us, Lord. Remind us of your wonderful works. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Several years ago, several years ago, I, uh, my wife and I went to go see a concert. Uh, we were living down in southern Illinois, and it was in Cape Girardeau, across, across the Mississippi River. And we drive, and and uh, we were really excited. There was one artist, songwriter, Chris August, that we were going to see. And my wife loved, loved some of his songs. And so we were going to see this concert. And I had all, these, all of these you know, artists and things in this. And Chris August was like this tiny little small piece at the beginning. And he was the only reason we were going. There were some other people there like Toby Mac and I don't know, some other people. But we didn't really care. We only went for Chris August. So we, went to, we made it a date night, you know. got the babysitter, and uh, went over to Kate, went to dinner. Dinner took longer than we thought, so we, we get to the concert. There's traffic everywhere. I don't know why. I guess Toby Mac's a big deal. I, I don't know. So it was like the lot, there were cars everywhere. It took forever to get in the parking lot. We finally get inside, and we're walking in to the audit, there was like this giant arena. It was Southeast Missouri State's giant arena, you know, that they have where they play basketball and all that kind of stuff. And we walk in, and Chris August is up there, and literally, like, his last note is being sung. you know, and my wife's going, really? So we decide to stay. And uh, interestingly enough, one of the next opening, there were like eight opening acts to Toby Mac, you know, I guess he's a big deal. Did I already say that? He's a big deal? I guess he's a big deal. Anyway, so we, walk, we, we sit down, and, and uh, we, first of all, we were like, I think we're getting old because this is really loud, and we didn't used to complain about things like that, but here we are, and up walks who of all people but the, the, the gal who is on American Idol, Mandisa. We had no idea Mandisa was going to be here, and here she was. She walks up. You remember? Does anyone remember Mandisa? Maybe she's still singing. I don't know. You listen to her stuff. And she starts singing, you're an overcomer. you know. And my wife, yesterday, I was, we were talking about this, and she starts doing the dance moves. She actually was remembering all the spinning around, and I didn't remember that. It, anyway, they, it, it, I was thinking about this song she was singing. She says, you're an overcomer. Stay in the fight till the final round. You're not going under because God is holding you right now. You might be down for a moment feeling like it's hopeless. That's when he reminds you that you're an overcomer. You're an overcomer. I want to ask you this question before we. I'm not really going to get into the theology of the song much, but but I do want to ask this question. Do do you feel like you're an overcomer today? (laughs) Or do you feel defeated? Do you maybe feel overwhelmed by life? Maybe not right now, but maybe this past week. Think about what's going on. Look around the world for a minute. Are you optimistic? In, in your weak moments, are you maybe a little sickened by what's happening in our world? Consider, consider some recent headlines. Some of these are coming just from this past week. There's a, a family in, in a homeschool, Christian homeschool family in Germany that's being brought up in charges for homeschooling their kids. There's this woman in Pakistan who has been fighting to, to have her name cleared, a Christian woman. She gave birth to one of her kids in jail because of her Christian faith. Maybe you think, well, it's just overseas, you know. There was a pastor in Turkey, Andrew Brunson, who was in prison supposedly for, I think, conspiracy against the government. Basically, it was because he was a Christian pastor. God's grace and, and, and providence, he was released recently. Friends, it's not just overseas that we face hostility. It's right here in our own country. There is the strongest pro-abortion legislation that we've heard of being fought for right now. There are Christian schools and organizations under fire right now. There is a court case, I don't know if you knew this, right here in, in, in Green Bay that came out of De Pere fighting for the freedom of religious institutions to practice freely what we believe to practice. Did you know that's happening? It just happened. Friends, the... the, the the hostility against Christianity that Jesus talked about, you will, you will be hated, it's not way out there. It's right here. Did you, did you know that life expectancy rates in the past five years have started to drop for the first time since 1920? And do you know why? There's two main reasons why. Suicide rates and overdose. In one year, the overdose deaths doubled From 35,000, I think, in 2016, to 70,000 in 2017. Friends, people are struggling to have hope. And then, not to mention the deep political divide that forces government shutdowns and all that nonsense. Maybe to get more personal, what's going on in your, what are the battles you're facing? (laughs) Broken relationships sickness, loss of a loved one, maybe you're afraid, afraid of, of losing status, maybe you're afraid of standing up for what's right because you might get ridiculed, and then there's just the ongoing spiritual warfare that we face, that I don't even. I think sometimes we're not even aware of, we, 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 we've learned to live with it and ignore it. You see, when you think about what the world offers, the world offers confusion, the world offers misunderstanding, the world offers uh, fickleness, unpredictability, instability, the world offers to tempt us, the world oppresses us, the world keeps us in bondage. And how do we often respond as Christians? Are we filled with the peace that surpasses all understanding? Are we joyfully content in the midst of all this? Are we living out our faith with humble boldness? Are we confident in God's purposes in the midst of all this? I don't know about you, but I I struggle with that. I struggle to understand God's purposes. My faith is fickle at times. So what are we to do? Well, Jesus wraps up this entire discourse with, with these words, fitting words for us today. And he says this, take heart I have overcome the world take heart I have overcome the world if you don't hear anything else I say today then hear that take heart I have overcome the world Jesus says and there's three specific ways or or, or things that we're going to see in in how he does this and in some ways that he does this and and the first is this idea of these figurative things that, that we see and we see that Jesus is going to start overcoming some misunderstandings. My wife and I on our refrigerator um, have a list. And it's, it's uh, rightly named the honey-do list. You know what that is? That's my list of stuff. When I have free time in the evenings or on the weekend do this stuff, right? And so I went up to the list one day. She was at Bible study. It was a Friday morning, which is my day off. And, and I went up to the list and I said, okay, I'm going I'm to be a, a, a proactive husband and I'm not going to be reminded to go look at the list. I'm just going to check the list. And I went on and I, said, I saw the words, put up basement door. I thought, okay, put up basement door. Now there's this door in our basement that was in this storage room. And there was another door before that and that door, we, we took out into the garage, and we put up in the rafters to store it, like up above the garage. So I went down. I said, all right. I grabbed the basement door, put it right up into the rafters in the garage, and I thought, boom, done, checked it off. My wife comes home. She goes downstairs. She said, I saw that you marked this off, but where's the basement door? It's not up on the hinges. I said, do well, I put it up? She said, no, I meant put it up on the hinges. I said, I thought you meant put it up on the rafters. She said, are you like Amelia Bedelia? Is this like literally like put it up? You know, put it up. (laughs) Don't you hate misunderstandings? What's worse than misunderstanding something is when like me, you think you understand something, but you really don't. This is the disciples' problem. No matter how hard they tried, the disciples continued to misunderstand Jesus right up until the end. They misunderstood his purpose for coming. They misunderstood that he was about to suffer and die, even though he told them, I'm going to die. They misunderstood what he was calling them to do. And he points out part of the issue in verse 25. He says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. Now, by these things in verse 25, he's referring to everything he said in this upper room discourse. So, so here are some gospel nuggets, you might say, from the gospel room discourse that, that encapsulates these things. I have said these things to you. Well, here's some of the things he said. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He said, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. He said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. He said, if I go, I'm going to send someone else to help you. He said, if you weep, uh, actually he said, when you weep, don't worry because your sorrow is going to turn into joy. And then he said, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Ask and you will receive. Why? So that your joy will be full. That's a pretty awesome gospel nuggets. Pretty amazing things that he's told them to encourage them. And here they are. Still a little confused, and Jesus says, well, I have said these things in figures of speech. You know, mostly metaphors, similes, you know. I had a lot of fun looking up figures of speech like puns, but I won't bore you with all that. Uh, My favorite one was about the, the, why don't, you know, some relate, oh, how did it go? Oh, how did it go? Oh, why don't some couples go to the gym? Because some relationships don't work out. Anyway, that's bad. But Jesus speaks mostly in metaphors. That's the figure of speech he uses, here's some examples, from, just from the Upper Room Discourse. Uh, he says this idea of, I'm going to prepare a place for you in my Father's house. There, that's a figure of speech that, that can be a little bit difficult. See, we have this vantage point, don't we? We're looking back to the cross. We're looking back after already knowing Jesus rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sent the Holy Spirit. We have this, this, this vantage point that's far different than the disciples. They're standing over here. They haven't been given the Holy Spirit yet. They don't know that Jesus is going to die, even though he's told them. They don't know he's going to rise from the dead. They don't know he's going to send and send the Holy Spirit, even though he's told them so. So they have this veiled perspective, so to speak. He also talks, like in 15, he talks about this this idea that he's the vine and you're the branches. That's a figure of speech. He says that he's going to send a helper. Okay. After he goes away, like he's going to go to the grocery store and send a helper. I mean, there's, there's some confusion here about what is he saying. He even uses this example, you're, you're going to have joy after sorrow, just like a woman who gives birth has joy after the child's born. And then, even right here, he uses this phrase, the hour is coming. You see, there, there is a sense in which Jesus is intentionally veiling his language. Now, you shouldn't be surprised by this if you're familiar with Scripture. This is how God has actually worked. If you go back to the beginning, God has worked where he, in a sense, there's this idea of shadows that point to something greater. Right? Think of like sacrifices that point to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. Or you think about the, the idea of, of a king, King David, who is put on the throne, but then he's told, Your kingdom's gonna last forever. Well, that's pointing us to a greater king. There's, there's this anticipation and fulfillment, there's this veiled sense of, of what God is doing, and then, and then a clarity when Christ comes and fulfills it. So God's been working this way throughout all time. And so Jesus says to you, An hour is coming. Verse 25, when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, in figurative language, but I'm going to tell you plainly about the Father. Jesus promises to overcome their misunderstanding, to tell them about the Father. He's going to overcome, here's your notes if you're taking notes, he's going to overcome their misunderstanding with truth. With truth. You remember the the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? Emmaus. After Jesus rose from the dead. It's great. It's in Luke 24. And here they are. They're walking along in and, and Jesus. They don't know it's Jesus. He has veiled himself from their sight somehow. Not sure how. Other than he just literally, the spirit of God was blocking so they could not recognize Jesus. Which is wild because if you remember when Jesus is, is, after he rose from the dead and he meets Mary in the garden, she, her back is turned to him and she says her name and she recognizes him. So it's amazing that, that these disciples don't recognize his voice, much less his appearance. But they don't because God wanted to do something here. And, and so they're walking along and it's in Luke 24. In verse 21, the, these disciples go, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. I mean, they're talking to the risen Jesus. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things had happened. So they had some idea of like, maybe something cool is going to happen on the third day. Jesus, a few verses later, says this to them. This is Luke 24, 25. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, i.e. the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, Jesus tells them, one day, very soon, I'm going to speak very plainly to you about the Father. I'm going to overcome your misunderstandings with truth, with the Word. And then he guarantees this. He says, in that day, verse 26, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that you will ask the Father on your behalf. See, he's saying here that you are going to be able to ask. You're going to have direct access to the Father through prayer. You're going to be able to pray and say, Lord, help us. Father, help us understand what's going on right now. You're going to have welcomed access. It says here that the Father loves you in verse 27. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. So Jesus is promising that I'm going to speak plainly and you can pray to the Father and he will help you understand. Now, This verse in 27, we can read it and on the surface think, well, okay, so it says that the Father loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. So does this mean that God's love for us is dependent on our love for Jesus? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. And we know that because of some other places in Scripture that speak to this, primarily 1 John 4, 19, which says we love because he first loved us. So we love God because he first loved us. So I know it creates this like circle in your mind like, okay, so God loves me and then I love Jesus. And now the Father loves me because I love Jesus because God loved me to help me love Jesus. Yeah, that's, that's what's going on. It's actually what's going on. There's a, a, a guy, a commentator who says it like this. They owe their love to Christ As a prior divine work in them, and this proceeds from God's love. So they they love because God has loved them first, and now God loves them because they love. It's this great circle of love, I guess you could say. And it's a wonderful truth. You see, here Jesus is saying that you are going to go from misunderstanding to truth. You're going to go from from things that are unclear to things that are made clear. Now, this is really important for the apostles. You know why it's so important for the apostles? Because they're the ones who write the whole New Testament. They need to have this clarity about God. But for us, it's important because we benefit from how God made things clear to them. And we know that we can pray and ask God, help me understand what you're saying here. One of my new favorite prayers comes from Psalm 119.36. And it says this, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish game. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish game. Friends, are, are you struggling to understand God's purposes in the world right now? I would be I would, I would probably be surprised if you weren't a little bit. There's a lot of crazy stuff happening. When you look at your circumstances, are you struggling to understand that, that God has a plan? Are you struggling to understand how, how do I fit into all of this? Friends, these words are telling us that you can turn to the Father in prayer and know that Jesus has promised to help you understand his word. He's not going to help you understand every last facet of what he's doing. He hasn't said that. He said, I'm going to tell you about the Father, and this is where we learn about the Father. And he will help you understand when you go to him in prayer. When you go to him in prayer. This is your access. Jesus says that there's this hour coming when this is going to happen. And so for the disciples, this was being delayed a bit longer. This this idea of the hour coming is a reference to to his death, uh, to his resurrection. Now the disciples thought he meant right now. And we see that with what they say next. And they say next in verse, uh, uh, well Jesus says something in verse 28 first. He says, I came from the Father and have come into the world. And now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples, see they think, oh we got it figured out. Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Remember, Jesus just says, the hour is coming when I'm going to talk plainly. It's not right now, actually. It's just about to come. But they say, we know it now. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, do you now believe? And he goes on and he shows how maybe their belief was a little bit a little bit less than than a, than a full belief, you might say, a mature belief. Anyone ever go through the drive-through? Not, you don't have to raise your hand. I know it's sort of like it used to be like everyone went through the drive-through because it was cool, but now it's sort of like eh, if you go through the drive-through, you're, I don't know why, but people sort of frown upon that. But whenever I go through the drive-through, which doesn't happen that often, uh, I have the hardest time making a decision. Does anyone else have this problem? I pull up, I see the board, and it's usually like this giant, you know, board of options. Of all these things you can get, and variations, and I seriously sit there. and Everyone in my car has their order. They, they put it in, and I'm sitting here going, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Uh, and I'll choose something. And sometimes by the time I get from there to the window, I've already changed my mind. I actually want something else. This is me in drive-thrus. I, I am terribly wishy-washy, terribly all over the place because I have no idea. I want this. Maybe I want that. There's this wishy-washiness that we see in the disciples that comes out. You ever think about the story of the Apostle Peter? Think about the Apostle Peter for a minute. One of, the, one of the, these, these great guys who, who really, he, he really reveals, I think, our faith, doesn't he? You know, in, in Matthew 14, there's this story where, where, you know, they're in the storm, and Jesus walks on the water to them, and they're scared, and they're like, that's oh, a ghost, and he says, no, it's me. And and Peter says, if it's you, call me to come down on the water. And he comes down, and Peter's walking on the water, you know. Not walking on sunshine, walking on the water. And he's walking to Jesus. And he's fixed, his eyes are on him. And then what happens? He starts to doubt. Oh, the waves are coming. And he starts sinking. Jesus takes his hand and said, "Why, why are you doubting me? And then in Matthew 16, Peter says, you are the Christ." And then just two chapters later, he says, "Uh, how many times do I have to forgive someone, Jesus? Do I need to keep forgiving people over and over? You know, this back and forth with his faith, right? Matthew 26, which we read a little bit about in in John 13. Peter, when Jesus says that, you know, you're all going to leave me, he says, I'm never going to leave you, Jesus. And then just a few hours later, as we're going to see, as we keep going through this, Peter abandons Christ. In fact, outwardly rejects him, denies him three times. This this is fickle faith, my friends. But let us not be too quick to cast judgment. Because I imagine that if you're like me, this is your struggle as well. See, we confess our faith in Jesus, and the next moment we live as if he doesn't exist. One minute we read his word, and the next we live like we haven't actually just read that and believe anything it said. See, here the disciples are, and they make this bold confession this bold confession in verse 30. They say, now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. This is a sincere, bold confession that they're making. And Jesus responds and says, really, do you really believe? Now now before, before we, 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 we sort of start saying, well, they didn't have any faith at all. Let's go back for a second and look at something Jesus said in verse 27. Because Jesus actually already showed them that he believed that they had faith. Remember what he said? He said, the Father loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Even though their faith is fickle, even though their faith is immature, even though their faith is inadequate, they still have some faith. And Jesus makes much of their little bit of faith. He acknowledged this. see, for their good, then, to humble their hearts... He then offers this warning, and he says, do you have faith? Do you believe? And in verse 32, he talks about what's going to happen. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. As I've already mentioned, in a few hours, all of the disciples would abandon Jesus. Peter would outwardly deny Jesus. Jesus warns, yes, you have faith. But don't be confident in your faith. And even as he's warning them, we start to see the grace of God. He just warned them, you're all going to leave me. And then what does he say at the end of 32? Yet I am not alone. For the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Think about this. Even though they're going through this abandonment, they're about to, and they're going through this fickle faithness. I don't know if that's a word. Jesus still encourages them in the midst of that. Jesus still offers them peace. And this isn't a peace like you can find in the world. This is a peace that surpasses all understanding. This is a peace that offers hope in in the midst of tragedy and brokenness. A peace that offers contentment in the midst of struggle. And it's a peace that can only be found in Christ. He says, I've said these things so that in me you may have peace. What is he doing here? Jesus is overcoming their fickle faith with unchanging grace. It's grace that doesn't change. See, our faith may be tossed back and forth In the wind, but God's grace remains. We may struggle to trust in God's goodness, and yet God's goodness towards us in Christ remains. We may forget that God is in control, yet God is graciously still in control, even if we forget it. So take heart, friends. Jesus' grace towards you is unchanging. His confidence in you who believe, even with a little bit of inadequate, imperfect faith, he still has confidence in you. He's not asking for perfect faith. He's asking for faith as small as a mustard seed. You know how small that is? He also says that that's enough faith to do a whole lot of wonderful things. You see, friends, our relationship to Jesus is not based on how big our faith is. It's based on how big God is. Our relationship to God is not based on what we accomplish. It's based on what Jesus has accomplished. Well, how big is our God? What has Jesus accomplished? Jesus talks about this in his very last words to the disciples. And he says this, take heart. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. See, there's this idea of victory here. This idea of victory, and he's, he's getting to a point here about victory over something. And this is the victory over our final enemy, specifically. But it has implications far beyond the victory over the devil. I have overcome. The word overcome uh, indicates uh, triumph, uh, victory. Conquering, He says, I have overcome, I have triumphed over the world. Remember in, in this gospel, the world refers to uh, eh, eh, those who rebel against God, those who resist uh, uh, his people, who resist his work. Hostility towards God and, and his uh, people is considered the, the world. And, and Jesus says, I have overcome, uh, overcome the world. I have triumphed over the world. And you'll remember in other places, even earlier in John 12, we have read about the prince of the world, the ruler of the world. He is the devil. He is Satan. Now, friends, it's important that we recognize that that we have a real enemy in Satan. I think think it was C.S. Lewis who said one of the greatest victories of the devil is to get us to think he doesn't exist. He does exist, and he's at work. Here's some things that he's doing right now. He is scheming. Ephesians 6, verse 11, talks about putting on the armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So so what's the devil doing? He's scheming right now, friends. He's scheming. He's also seeking people to devour. 1 Peter 5.8 says that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, are, you, are you frightened by this? I can be in my weak moments. But let us turn to these words and hear Jesus say, I have overcome the world. If you look to the the end of the the story in Revelation, where where John is, the same John who wrote this, is having this vision, and and God is is unraveling his purposes, really his purposes for creating the world, his purpose of redemption throughout all of history, what he is doing and how he's going to consummate it all at the end. And he says these words in, in Revelation 17, verse 14. He says, they will make war on the Lamb." He's referring to the, 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 basically the devil and all who follow the devil. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will what? Will conquer them, the lamb being Christ. For he, that is the lamb, is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. You you see, friends, Jesus has overcome the world. Jesus has overcome our final enemy, the devil himself. And this isn't a promise of something to come. Regardless of your end times view, Jesus is not saying, I will overcome. He says, I have overcome. It's a declarative statement of something that is already true. And how is it made true? And it's in these words we find in, in verse 28 in our passage this morning. He says, I have come from the Father. Referring to the fact that he's God. He's part of this divine plan to save the world. I have come from the Father and I have come into the world. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. And we have beheld the glory of God full of grace and truth. And now I am leaving the world. I'm going to suffer and die and pay the penalty that you deserve to pay for your sin, but I'm going to pay that. I'm going to substitute myself in your place and make atonement, make payment for your sin. And then he says, and then I'm going to go to the Father. I'm going to rise from the dead, defeating death. and I'm going to ascend into heaven and sit at the right hand of God, interceding for you, Praying for you and sending my helper. You see, friends, Jesus overcame our final enemy at the cross. He overcame the enemy of Satan at the cross. He dealt this this blow to him. He is crippled. Satan no longer has the power to accuse the nations, he no longer has the power to deceive. Sure, he can momentarily do that, but God has crippled him. He has overcome him, and he knows the end is in sight, so we have nothing to fear. In college, I I played in a band. I played in a couple bands, but one band I played in was was, uh, this band where I played bass, and I had this big bass cabinet that I really, I got it at the store, and it, it was a custom cabinet. It had, like, blue sparkly vinyl, like, padding. And it had chrome, like, it was really cool. It was really fun. Bass. I'm looking at Julie. I don't know if she, she's laughing. And so we would, and it was a pain to lug around, you know. And we'd put it in the car and lug it around. And and so one time we were playing at a uh, coffee shop or something, and, and the band said, hey, why don't you do a bass solo? And so I started doing a bass solo, and, and apparently, according to our band manager, who's also my wife, Tara, uh, she said that I kept playing for like 10 minutes and they're all rolling their eyes at me like, oh my goodness, when is this guy going to stop playing the bass? I guess I got lost in the moment. But, but anyway, the point of all this is to say that this band, we had a name for our band and it was More Than Conquerors, MTC. And uh, one of my bandmates had this explanation about, about the band, why he wanted to name our band More Than Conquerors. And he said, he said this, he said, imagine that there's a boxer and he's, he's in this prize fight and, he, he, he defe- and he's, he's like the underdog, and he defeats the other guy, and he wins the prize fight. What is he? Well, he's a conqueror. Now imagine that the boxer gives you all of his winnings. What are you? You're more than a conqueror. Friends, do you know that that is what you are in Christ? You are more than a conqueror. Romans 8 says it like this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, Jesus is the overcomer. And in him, you, you are more than that. You are loved, you are cherished, you are kept, you are protected In Christ, you have all that you need to keep going in this world because he has triumphed. You may not understand everything God's doing right now, but take heart. Jesus overcomes with truth. You may have weak faith like me, a faith that is prone to wander and, and leave the God we love. But take heart. Jesus overcomes our fickle faith with his unchanging grace. You may feel the effects of of the work of the devil. But take heart, Jesus has overcome our final enemy at the cross. You may feel defeated, overrun, overwhelmed, broken down. And yet remember that if you are in Christ, these are only feelings. These are only perceptions. This is not truth. The truth is, Jesus is the overcomer who says, you can have peace in me. I have said these things to you, he says, that in me you you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, help us to believe these words. Lord, help us not to base the choices we make on the way we may be feeling at a given moment. Help us, Lord, to go to the truth and to to be reminded and encouraged by the truth of your word that you have overcome, that you have called us to yourself, that you hold us. Help us to believe it, God, in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.